It's a mythological figure, half goat, half horse. The woman by the goat, she's sawing something. Yes, I think she's sawing the social body. The soul is a sign of division. It's a good metaphor, I think, for our problems today. The social body being sawed apart. Absolutely. For me, this project began with the question, what is democracy? And I quickly realized it's not something that's ever actualized, but always something that is in motion, a kind of ideal we're reaching towards. But in practice, everywhere you look, democracy is in trouble. Progress can go into reverse, and terrible things have happened in the name of democracy. Yes. It's been so abused and so misapplied, you know, compared to its original meaning, which means the power of the people, the government of the people. But so many have fought for the realization of a true democracy that in a way it's important not to uh, abandon the world. Right. And we also need to think hard about what that word even means. Yes. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It's machine killed. Hello, friends and enemies. It's episode 70 of This Machine Kills. I'm Jathan, joined by Ed and producer Jeremy, as always. And uh, the, no need for a big preamble. Let's, let's just roll into it because I am uh, so very excited to talk with our guest today, somebody we've wanted to have on the show um, from the conception of TMK, from before the first episode even aired. Uh, she was right up at, uh, at the top of our wish list. So uh, it's a documentary filmmaker and author of many books and essays, an activist and organizer, not to mention a musician. Astra Taylor does it all and better than most people. Um, so it's just, it, I mean, it's just really great to have you here, Astra. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks for that kind introduction. And great to get to connect with you, uh, my friend, in this moment of social distancing that is not a moment. It's what, 14 months? <laughs> <laughs> a very, very long, long moment. moment. But yes, I mean, it is also something I something I did not throw in there as well. Uh, a longtime friend and collaborator as well. Um, I've, I've, I've known you since your first book came out, People's Platform, all the way back in 2014. No, we were hating on the internet, hating on the techies together before it was cool. <laughs> That's right. We were ahead of the curve. And, and like we were saying uh, before we recorded, or rather like you said, right, it's just proven right again and again and again. Um, <laughs> our Cassandra curse uh, to be correct and hate it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's funny because it, even when the People's Platform came out, I had some anxiety that it was too negative, right? I mean, that it was too critical and you know, that was not the, the sort of tone of the conversation at the time. And, and in retrospect, you know, that was a worry I did not need to waste any time on. Um, but certainly it was something that weighed on me in the months leading up to the publication of that book. Yeah, it seems at the time there was a lot of um, attempts to insist that negative projects or negative criticisms were like way too dark and dreary. I remember 
or after I started diving into criticism, my, my entry was Morozov. And I remember Morozov was actually my introduction also to the People's Platform because he'd written a really, you know, uh, a good review of the book. Like his writing, your writing, God, pretty much any writing that like said, maybe we should you know, think critically and deeply about uh, the Internet and not assume that it has inherent good and liberatory you know, uh, features to it. Any argument that tried to do that was dismissed as uh, apocalyptic, right? Or dark and dreary and unnecessarily pessimistic when it was like, uh, no, <laughs> you know, like that's that's what we needed to start the conversation, right? Yeah, people were cheerleading. That's what I called all the sort of tech boosters of the time, you know, whether it was Clay Shirky or Lawrence Lessig. I mean, not, not necessarily the entrepreneur's you know, running these tech companies, but this class of pundits who were just dominating the social discourse at the time. And they were, they were, they were cheerleaders. I mean, it was just like fanboys, fanboys of these companies and of technology for its own sake. And, uh, you know, there's definitely a gendered component, which is something I write about in, write, I wrote about in an essay that is you know, in this new collection, Remake the World that was published, I don't know, in 2014 or 15, but yeah, male, these male cheerleaders. <laughs> and the thing is that, um, you know, I, you know, the, the critical disp- disposition is the Marxist disposition, right? It's, re- you know, to be relentless <laughs> and, and to be truthful. Um, and, and that, um, that was so silenced. I think for me, what's interesting, and I'm curious what y'all think about this, because you, you know, write similarly around tech. You know, I think what happened for me is that in 2016, with the election of Donald Trump, the, it, things became too dystopian in a cliche way, right? So we went from this tech utopianism, social media is democratizing everything, you know, rah, 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 to this, you know, oh my God, social media is destroying democracy and poisoning our discourse. And it's like, well, hold on, we never had democracy. <laughs> and also that, you know, it's not so Manchian. It's not just good versus evil. The point is it's the business model underlying it. The point is it's the political economy And, you know, actually technology could be used to do all sorts of good and radical things. So, you know, during this whole period of writing, I've also been organizing and building this tech platform, you know, to empower debtors to engage in campaigns of civil civil and economic disobedience. So it's very funny. I find myself sort of alienated from both types of discourse, right? The sort of, you know, any, because they're both sort of, what's the word when something just seems too preordained, right? They're just too simplistic. And it's like, in both cases, political economy is left out. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, it's it's funny and very fortuitous that you bring that up because in our in our Patreon episodes, we're doing like this a uh, biweekly series of uh, where we're reading um, Langdon Winner's autonomous technology, uh, and we're just going through it chapter by chapter. And the last chapter we read, and the episode just came out this past weekend, was his uh, his chapter looking at like technological determinism and, you know, all these ideas around drift or evolution or whatever, how technology changes. And, and he brings up one of the things he mentions in there, um, is that it's like the, the whole, the whole discourse and the whole landscape of analysis is either between like prophets of hope or prophets of doom, right? It is this like Manchian viewpoint of like, you're either yeah, a, a, a huge cheerleader of technology, or you are a primitivist, right? Just an outright um, rejection, not a critical rejection, just like a knee-jerk rejection of all technology. 
like one of the things that we keep saying as we're reading through Winner's book, which, you know, was published in the 70s. It's just like, God damn, it's like the more things change, the more they just stay the same. We're stuck on this like infinite treadmill of having the same really bad debates um, and really bad arguments and seemingly never able to escape. Thank you for saying the word determinist, because that's what the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> it's like an itch in my brain that is now relieved. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> Great. <laughs> I mean, you've mentioned, you just mentioned so many things that I want us to get further into, but before we do, I should absolutely shout out as well um, that the, uh, the excuse for our conversation um, is the publication of your uh, new book, uh, Remake the World, Essays, Reflections, Rebellions. And it's just a fantastic collection of, of, of many of your essays, not all of them, but many of your essays that you've been publishing um, in various places. I think the earliest one is 2013 and the latest one is just like last year, right? So just like this, I, this really great um, span of, of essays looking at a lot of really big questions and a lot of big themes. Um, and I think also, I, I was telling you that I really enjoyed reading this because it was a, a really great chance to revisit all of this uh, work that I've already read of yours, but to see it all kind of together. Um, but also to see how like, there is this kind of uh, a, a very evergreen quality um, in the essays that you've written. And I think that's because you are really getting to the heart at some like, big ongoing, uh, you know, evergreen themes um, in society and our thinking, right? For me, right, this question of democracy, um, these, these questions of debt and social reproduction, these questions of technological and, and social change. I, I was really struck uh, seeing all this hanging together by both the, the breadth of subjects that you write about. You bring in so much great philosophy and literature in addition to um, just analysis of current affairs and technological development, um, but also the, the depth of your thinking on these things. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. You know, one essay that I didn't put in there is the one we wrote together about Facebook credit scores, but I, but I did mulch that with your permission into the book that came out last year, Can't Pay, Won't Pay, which is uh, the Debt Collective's manifesto. So <laughs> I did give, I'm very, I'm, I'm an environmentalist. I'm very into recycling, you know, like work, <laughs> work needs to be repurposed. Um, but that was a, that was a really, fun piece that we wrote looking at the way that there are all of these invisible consumer and credit scores that you know, have huge you know, racial and class implications in our lives, even though we don't see them. <laughs> one thing when I was writing the People's Platform, one thing I was railing against, because you know, okay, it's nice to be fueled by these, these sort of muses of hate, <laughs> you know, like sometimes you're in, sometimes you write because you're like some of the, the essays in Remake the World are like, more about things I'm curious about or awe. And then sometimes, you know, I like to just write, yeah, write about things that are pissing me off. And um, these part of what the part of what I found so striking and strange about the tech cheerleaders that I mentioned is this, that they, they were so, they would just repeat these platitudes for years and years and years and just like go on the speaking circuit and speak at these conferences and just like never have a new idea. Um, and so when I finished that book, I was like, okay, I'm done with tech for a while, but I, technology is everywhere. It, it infuses everything, you know, all aspects of our life. Like, what does it even mean to say tech anymore? And so that's why, you know, I, I have still sprouted off these like random essays um, that, you know, for me are 
are fundamentally about me just trying to make sense of the world we live in. Right. Like I, that, that, that is why I write, you know, and that's where these pieces come from. I'm mm-hmm. like, what the hell is going on? And how does, you know, the economic system, how does, you know, the capitalist system we are living in interface with these new technologies? And, you know, do they change? <laughs> Have they fundamentally changed capitalism? You know, are they changing our psychologies? What new possibilities are opened up by them? And so the essays, the few essays that, you know, explicitly touch on technological subjects are me sort of still, yeah, still like thinking through some of the questions that people's platform raised back in the day. I, th- I think there's, you know, there's this really interesting thread also that appears in some, I guess that manifests in an essay near the end that I thought was also a really interesting way to look at these things. And it was the, um, who will speak for the trees essay, you know, that I was really fascinated by, because I think we've been talking a bit more here on the show sometimes about the role in which rights, individual and collective factor into things. And the idea of claiming new sorts of rights as collectives or insisting on new ways of thinking of them that technologies don't have rights to exist, that we might have more obligations to interfere when we see harmful systems. But this essay talking about rights as opposed to welfare of ecological systems and and animals and plants, I thought was a really interesting way to undermine like the sort of ever growing uh, body of rights that corporations, right, and, and and legal persons keep accumulating. Um, and I'm really interested, I guess, in your in, like your idea on like wh- like how to push for these these sorts of ideas that like you know to imbue people with the idea that they have responsibilities and rights that go beyond like the very typical. Um, you know, rights that are enumerated in the Bill of Rights, right? Right to, you know, assembly, right to, you know, bear arms, right to vote, that there are rights that we have to one another and to the environment that also are becoming more pressing inside of like a technological system and a business model underlying it that are, you know, interface with like, yeah, a, a pretty devastating and destructive system, I guess. Yeah, that essay is Who Will Speak for the Trees is about movements that are pushing for the rights of nature. And it's a it's a global um, phenomenon. And so in various countries, people have managed to secure some rights. So New Zealand is sort of at the cutting edge of this. And that's because it actually uh, relates to indigenous tr- um, modes of governance and tradition. And so they're kind of, you know, bringing, bringing those into the colonial system of government. But it's actually something that's happening all across the United States in really impressive ways. And so one thing, it was nice to be able to update that essay and talk about, for example, how in Ohio, Lake Erie was recently um, granted rights by the community. And these are, these are creative techniques that communities are using for very urgent purposes because they're trying to stop typically some kind of pollution or, you know, stop fracking by giving rights to the local ecosystem. They're trying to throw sand in the gears of the fossil fuel industry, of of this machine of extraction and climate destruction. And so, you know, I'm fascinated by creative forms of activism, right? I mean, because that's what I'm trying to do in my own organizing, which is what new rights can we claim for ourselves? What new rights can we claim as debtors? <laughs> you know, can we claim rights for the more than human world that is being exploited and, and treated as as a resource to be owned or to be, um, you know, to be used up. And I guess for me, with a big frame for this, though, is that as a socialist, <laughs> I think we're supposed to challenge property relations. And so I just think socialists should care about the question of animals 
and should care about the question of ecology in the sense of like, what gives us the right to own this stuff, to treat it as stuff when it's life, you know, like what gives us the right to own another creature and to treat it as a commodity, to eat it, to exploit it, et cetera. You know, I feel like socialists don't grapple with the questions of non-human animals enough in that way. And like really from the, from the, through the lens of like what makes, what makes a being a thing. (laughs) And would that continue if we left this economic paradigm? I'd like to think not. Um, I'm also in that, that essay thinking through some of the rebuttals that I hear from my friends who tend to be more on the academic side of things, who are critical of rights, right? Because we do in this political paradigm, we do, we, you know, as you said, in the Bill of Rights, they tend to be individual and defensive, right? So, you know, the Bill of Rights is really protecting us from an overweening state that will violate our freedoms. And, and in that sense, rights, you know, are really limited, right? But I think, you know, I think there's something to think about rights as more substantive, as more collective, <laughs> as de-individualized. Um, I think it would be pretty radical if animals actually had rights. Um, because, t- you know, we talk about animal rights as though that's something, but animals don't have rights. They're technically property in our legal regime. And, you know, there are some laws that try to mitigate suffering that are concerned with their welfare, supposedly, but, you know, they're things under the law. I don't know. I just find these these efforts by people where they're engaged in this like theoretical effort, right? Like really thinking through this foundational, uh, these foundational aspects of our political system. I mean, a right, if we use that word all the time, <laughs> but what is it? You know, rights are kind of, they're defensive shields. Um, you know, some people say rights are trump cards, right? There's some, some space that's inviolate that you can't be trespassed upon. So I love this idea of citizens sort of rethinking them, reclaiming them, claiming new rights um, and expanding what's possible in this way that like literally is messing with corporate power. So when I updated this piece, I published it in 2016, I just went and updated it. And I found out that this community in rural Pennsylvania that was fighting a fracking company has like managed to basically hold the line and stop this gas company from destroying their community for, you know, the last uh, what has it been like six years since I wrote it? Right. So this, this sort of idea that seems really radical, which is saying, actually, you know what the watershed that we live near <laughs> is alive <laughs> and we're going to, we're going to claim rights for it. Just like, you know, corporate lawyers for a railroad company claimed rights back in the 19th century. <laughs> you know, we're going to be that brazen, like it's worked. And that makes me, that makes me excited, you know? And I think that's where, you know, it's partly, again, the philosophical and, and political and theoretical aspect, but it's also that I'm always looking for new new tools and new ways of fighting back and ways of thinking outside the usual box. And that's what, again, that's what these corporate lawyers did um, in the 1800s, you know, when they were like, oh, equal protection? Let's apply that to, quote unquote, corporate persons. And now we have a world where there's corporate personhood. You know, going back to what you said at the beginning, right, that you sometimes catch flack from your academic friends um, about this. And I think that is because, you know, that there is a very interesting 
critique of of the question of rights and human rights, right? Like from a Marxist standpoint of like, you know, th- this is this is bourgeois totally. politics, right? Yeah. Like human rights is bourgeois politics. But at the same time, I think what you've just laid out here and what not only just laid out here, but what you've laid out in your your own activist work as well is that like at the end of the day, we we do have to look for the tools that can help us, um, uh, you know, achieve something more progressive, right? It's like, you know, the question of rights uh, is, is maybe a way of doing bourgeois politics, but at the same time, if we cede the question of rights and the power of rights to the bourgeois, to the corporate, um, the corporate people or whatever, um, then, you know, they will continue using that for their own, for their own benefit, for their own purpose. And they, they, they are happy for us to, uh, wash our hands of rights, um, and, and in order for them to, to, to pick that up and continue using it. You know, and I, I want to give a shout out as well to, to your, to your own sister's work on this as well. Um, um, you know, Sonara Taylor, who uh, has written a lot of great stuff. Um, you know, she, her her book, uh, Beast of Burden, Animal and Disability Liberation. Um, and I think really doing a lot of interesting work tying together that question of animal rights and disability rights and, and what kind of uh, productive solidarities and crossovers um, ought we be looking for in terms of fighting for the the rights of all living uh, living beings um, that you know in various shapes and forms uh, to have a, a fruitful life uh, on this planet yeah and I think you know I, I understand I totally get the the critique of rights as bourgeois but you know, it's, it's all about power. And if you, if you can build the power, you can claim, mm-hmm. you can change what rights are, right? Again, you can collectivize them. You can make them substantive and social and economic as opposed to just individualist and defensive and liberal or whatever. And so that's where, um, yeah, that's, I, I, I think it is, it's coming from what I would describe as the organizer mindset or the, or the power mindset too. You know, it's like we, we, you know, you also have to use the tools and the words that are in the dis the discourse and that are provided to you and then figure out, try to, try to figure out how to transform them and expand them. I don't know. I, I like and this. shout I out like- to my I- sister, Sonora Taylor. Everyone should read her book. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, and I, I love this. I love this idea of the power <laughs> mindset. We practice power mindset on TMK. <laughs> you've heard you've heard of gorilla mindset or abundance <laughs> mindset. We practice power mindset. <laughs> I mean, going on that as well. I, it, something you mentioned as well is like, yo, what does it mean to have rights as a debtor? Mm-hmm. Could you talk more about? All of the work you've been doing for for a very long time. I mean, co- you know, going from uh, you know your work in Occupy Wall Street to the Rolling Jubilee um, to now the the Debt Collective, right? Can you can you give us a little bit of a scope of just the the landscape of debt, but also what does it mean to be a debtor? What does it mean to build power um, as as debtors? Yeah which we all are, right? I think all of us are debtors to varying degrees. Um, it's a high, it's like a highly privileged position in society to, to not be, um, in, in some form of debt right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, again, this is sort of trying to occupy this space, I guess, of, of praxis, right. It's of theory and practice together. Um, when Occupy happened, which is now almost 10 years ago, I was very ready. I mean, I felt like I had been waiting 
for my entire adult life up to that point, you know, I was like 30 for a movement focused on economics, <laughs> on economic concerns. You know, I was left person and it was like, I felt that's what we needed to do. We needed, we needed to have a movement that had materialist politics. And I felt, you know, I had seen a bit of that with the global justice movement that I had caught like the tail end of, um, you know, which was focused on international trade agreements and, and, you know, really for me, just knowing that movement exists got me thinking and reading about capitalism, you know, and about um, finance and how how these systems, the Bretton Woods Agreement, you know, the WTO, the IMF, sovereign debt, like how these things came into being. So in a way, you know, that movement was my economics teacher, you know, and got me thinking. But then what happened, you know, 9-11, mm-hmm. total suppression of dissent, <laughs> Patriot Act, Bush era politics. You couldn't have a protest in New York City with five people without getting kettled. <laughs> and so Occupy was this, you know, kind of pivot, right? And and for all of its foibles and for all of its kind of, you know, silliness on some level, um, it had real power. I mean, I think, it, you know, all these years later, it's like, oh, it actually did change the conversation. It actually did open space where now we are talking about, you know, socialism in a, in a way that would have been unimaginable, um, you know, in 2010. And, uh, you know, I think has sort of helped change the public consciousness, um, along with the fact that just inequality keeps getting out of control, right? I mean, it's like and things have gotten worse in the last 10 years. So that's also contributed in a big way. But so, yeah, I was reading a lot about finance and neoliberalism and financialization, all these processes. And it, but it wasn't until Occupy Wall Street when um, I, and, you know, along, it was one of these sort of group of epiphanies, right? This collective learning and collective thinking that happens in social movements where a lot of us were like, wow, everyone's a debtor. <laughs> like A, the financial mm-hmm. crisis that precipitated Occupy Wall Street was about mortgage debt, right? It was about the fact that, you know, people had been offered these subprime loans and there was, you know, all of this crime in the banking sector and the banks got bailed out and we got sold out. So on that level, it was about debt in a very, you know, obvious way. And the fact that these debts, these mortgage obligations were a commodity that was, you know, bought, bundled, securitized, sold as AAA when it was was not, <laughs> and insured, um, embedded against, you know, and then um, the people who were playing these financial games, again, they got bailed out, and then the, the, you know, millions and millions of people lost their homes, and the wealth of Black families was decimated, you know, Black families lost half of their wealth, Latinx families lost even more, so it was this, you know, enormous crisis for people. But yeah, it at the park, it was sort of apparent that people also had student debt. They also had medical debt. They felt they would never own homes. They felt they would never be able to retire. And it was just like, wow, what if we organized around this? You know, what if instead of just theorizing the way that debt, you know, central to this, you know, post 1970s economy, what if we actually tried to do something about it? And, you know, we really took inspiration from the labor movement, the idea that you know, in the workplace, you build power by withholding your labor. <laughs> and so what if debtors that were able to find each other and also engage in those kind of forms of collective bargaining, but this, in this case against a creditor and in a neoliberal situation, the creditor can be a private, you know, corporation or it can be the state because what does the state do? The state just basically props up corporations and, um, and does their bidding. So, we, you know, launched various initiatives, kind of testing the water. We did a lot of reading, a lot of writing. 
we wrote something called the debtor debt resistors operations manual where we analyzed every debt type from you know payday loans and other french financial services to like bankruptcy laws to student loans um then we launched something called the rolling jubilee where we bought and erased people's debts on the uh secondary market you and, and it's holding up his copy oh of, my God. <laughs> of the manual. That made me so happy. <laughs> yeah, no, the debt resistors uh, operations manual was like definitely a key radicalizing text for me and a bunch of my friends. And we like had initially tried to plan to like make a group and pull money together to tr- you know try to buy debts and liberate them. But I think it was around the time that the rules were changed, it seemed, or, or that it suddenly there were barriers to uh, doing it that we wanted to that. We were just like, okay, but we'll try to learn and like at least radicalize more people to do it. And I can't understate how important like your work on debt, David Graeber's work on debt has been really inspirational uh, as a way to think about solidarity through like, you know, other forms of direct action, right? Even if like you have a massive debt, there's a way to build solidarity with other people who also have that debt. And it's not just a disempowering uh, reality you have to suffer. It's so aggravating to see when you have people like attack uh, the um, the gas pipeline on the East Coast when they could be just erasing people's debts. One day. <laughs> Colonial pipeline breach is very interesting as well. And I mean, we won't get into it here. We should do a whole episode or we should get deeper into it in TMK because it's it's very funny. It's like it's this group called Dark Side. And um, it's like this professionalization of ransomware as a service. Uh, and after the, uh, I, I won't, I won't get into it because I could, I could go on and on. It's, it's all very absurd, but they put out a, like, like a corporate HR style statement being like, um, we will do better at vetting the, because they didn't do the hack. They sold the, the ransomware, uh, tool to another group who did the hack, um, and they were like, we will do better about vetting the people that we sell our illegal crime tools to next time um, because we have gotten way too much heat from the FBI <laughs> for this. It's like it's fine to do ransomware on hospitals, but you cannot do ransomware on a pipeline. That's a national security issue. <laughs> well, as someone sitting here who hasn't been able to get gas in like whatever, five days, I'm surprised that they... Only asked for like five million bucks. I thought that just seemed kind of low. I, I think they Very. <laughs> you know, negotiate up. But you know, there was the um, there was the Mr. Robot show, right? Which was kind of part of this hacker fantasy, and I, it had to have been inspired by Rolling Jubilee and Strike That a bit, right? In fact, I've got my mm-hmm. like kind of black hoodie <laughs> on. Um, maybe I could get a guest spot in that on the cast. But it's been really interesting. I mean, this kind of collective learning that being part of this movement was and writing the debt resistors operations manual and then writing can't pay, won't pay. And the sort of sense that, yeah, you analyze the world in order to try to change it. And so through the rolling Jubilee, which was this mechanism that bought and erased debt, we were able to erase something like $35 million worth of people's medical debts and tuition debts, but then through actually organizing in this model of a debtors union. So building the debt collective and, and, organizing people to go on a strike and to say, we won't pay, we can't pay, we won't pay. And to then we coupled that with these creative legal strategies. We've basically erased over 2 billion with a B, $2 billion of predatory student loans held by students who went to these for-profit colleges. And we also, in our research, like approaching the law as radicals, basically 
read the Higher Education Act of 1965 and were like, oh my God, they can erase all student loans. The government mm-hmm. has the power to do that without going through Congress. And so mm-hmm. right now we're sitting here talking, waiting for a memo that Joe Biden has requested about this legal authority that the debt collective, which has its roots in Occupy Wall Street, you know, discovered. And so um, I think that's, you know, that's where I, I, you know, I just can't emphasize enough this, this aspect of creativity, like looking at the world as it exists and all of its, you know, all of its hierarchy and its abusiveness and all of all of the ways that, you know, wealthy people have a stranglehold on it and still being like, where where can we hack it, right? Even if we're not literally hackers, but where can we, you know, where can we find some sort of leverage point that if we organize and if we make enough noise and if we engage in strategies of resistance that we can actually, you know, make people's lives better? Because I, you know, and even if we don't get everything we want, that act of making people's lives better will help build, you know, build the like fighting spirit that will keep going. Um, but yeah, it's been quite a quite a decade of like being in the trenches of of debt and really trying to basically, you know, turn oppression and exploitation into power, which is, you know, again, what the labor movement in a way is all about and, you know, so many social justice movements. I mean, that that's just amazing. It's hard to overstate how amazing that is. Like two erasing 2 billion dollars um in debt of various kinds for people. I mean, I think what it really does is it gets at the heart of something that has to be the motivation for all for leftists of all flavors, right? For socialists of all flavors is that it really is about how do we um, immediately and sustainably improve the material conditions of people's actual lives. Um, and a really great way of doing that is, yeah, giving them stuff, of course, but also relieving them of, of burdens that they have um, of, of, of this debt, right? I would love to hear, and I think it would be really on brand for TMK, um, to hear more about how did you actually do that? Can you tell us a little bit about the financial um, mechanisms of these like secondary debt markets, how you were able to raise money um, and then, uh, you know, uh, multiply that, uh, the amount that you could, could use to wipe out debt, right? Buying debt pennies on the dollar, for example. Could you could you walk us through that process a little bit just to give us a better idea of the actual like financialization of debt? Yeah. So if you if you actually add up everything that the debt collective has helped abolish, so including through this rolling jubilee mechanism and through our strategies of like direct confrontation, then it's two point it's two point eight billion. So it's almost three billion. So uh, basically, you know, debt you can you can achieve the goal of debt abolition in various ways, and it's important to say that just like you know, prison abolitionists, right? You want a world without and a world with. So the debt collective wants a world without debt, right? Where people aren't forced to borrow to meet their basic needs. So we want a world with, you know, universal, wonderfully funded higher education and healthcare because medical debt shouldn't exist, you know, and social housing and all all of these things that would you know get at the root of this problem. I mean, basically what has happened since the 70s is that wages have stagnated. We know that. And that it's been covered up with debt. So, you know, credit has been democratized and, you know, always the poorest people pay the most. It's expensive to be poor. So, you know, you're going to pay 400% on a payday loan. If you can't, you know, make your rent at the end of the month, you're going to, 
um, borrow and put necessities on a credit card, which is what most people do. Most people aren't buying, you know, whatever luxury items on their credit cards. Um, yeah, if you have to take a trip to the hospital, chances are you're going to put that on credit too, and it's likely going to bankrupt you. So debt is just splashing around the economy. We're drowning in it. In fact, before the pandemic, household indebtedness reached the historic proportion of something like $14 trillion, so a record high. Um, and so all of this stuff is sold on the secondary market. Some of it's securitized, like mortgages, but a lot of it is unsecuritized. It's just in these portfolios, literally PDFs, right? Or, you know, Excel spreadsheets of debt that has people's personal data and it's sold by debt brokers who are really underregulated. I mean, and they break the law, the few like fair debt collection laws that exist, they break them and call and harass people. But yeah, there's just these sort of, you know, below the banks, you know, but below Wall Street, right, which is trading securitized debt, there's like just all of these smaller um, companies, you know, buying and selling portfolios of payday loans or uh, auto loans or even like rent to own debts, you know, you name it. It's you can buy anything. You can just buy a portfolio of people's pain because that's what it is. Mm. And so what happens is, for example, a bank, a bank um, will declare some accounts uncollectible. So then they get a tax write off when they would sell those debts to a debt broker. <laughs> and then the debt brokers who paid maybe, you know, 10 cents on the dollar for them will then parse them and sell them again, or maybe they paid a, a penny on the dollar for them. And then people buy these portfolios and they try to collect. Um, so the Rolling Jubilee essentially just intervened almost like a debt collector would bought these portfolios, but instead of collecting, we erased them. And we had, we were the first people to ever do this. So we had to work with tax attorneys. We worked with some of the leading corporate tax attorneys in the country to figure out how to ensure people wouldn't have a tax burden. Because often if you cancel debts, it counts as income. Debt cancellation counts as income. This is a problem with a lot of loan forgiveness programs uh, from the government. So we worked our way around that. So there were no tax consequences. Um, and so we bought and erased, again, around $35 million of medical debt, probation debt, payday loans, uh, through crowdfunded money that we, we raised in 2012 into 2013 after Occupy. But then we also settled massive accounts that um, had been, uh, we worked with community lawyers who were suing these debt collectors. And as part of the settlements, they'd have to retire their accounts with us. So we extinguished like $800 million of utility debts, past due debts that were basically seized from these predatory debt collectors. So that was cool. And then the rest of the debts we've erased have been through these, uh, through campaigns against predatory for-profit colleges, where we organized the, the nation's first ever debt strike. And what we found was that basically people had the right to have their debt discharged. And just, you know, the Department of Education under Obama was totally ignoring it. <laughs> and that nobody had ever figured out how do you make this right into a rule, right? So we, we basically created an app. A, a, a mo for your mobile phone, where we worked with lawyers and kind of speculated how you would how you would submit a claim based on this right called borrower defense to repayment, and we flooded the Obama Department of Education with thousands and then tens of thousands of claims to the point where the Department of Education basically like stole our website, stole our app, and put it on their website. <laughs> um, and then uh, you know we created this crisis in the government. 
And um, and the Obama administration fucked us because they wanted they were very neoliberal and they refused to just issue mass relief. They just like they bailed out the banks, they bailed out this predatory for profit college, and they threw these students to the wolves to Betsy DeVos. So um, so the thing is that we're still fighting like the Biden administration. And so while we have won two billion dollars of relief for these students, there's like hun- a few hundred thousand more who are legally entitled to relief through this mechanism. The last thing I'll say on this, since this is a tech podcast, and I think it's really interesting, is that the DeVos administration, uh, and this was building on an Obama thing, was going to sp- basically they allotted 90 million dollars to redesign their website to make a borrower defense claim web page. So to, to kind of follow- finally implement this thing we had discovered and made into an issue. A whistleblower about six months ago (laughs) went public and said they scuttled this $90 million website redesign for being quote unquote, too user friendly. In other words, the government is supposed to make websites that are broken (laughs) and this is just going to let people, you know, I'm talking about people who have been exploited by like the shadiest, quote unquote, schools in the world, like University of Phoenix, DeVry, ITG Tech, that basically just like are in the business of robbing poor people and indebting them, mm-hmm. right? And you just basically like siphoning government money in the form of student loans. And yeah, and, and it was the website was too user friendly. It'd be too easy to enact your rights. So we got to just, you know, kill it. That's why, I mean, that, that just says everything, right? It says everything. It says everything about what this, uh, you know, th- this ideology of convenience, uh, these concepts like frictionless and, you know, uh, all of this stuff that is meant to be, you know, this is our experience of technology. Um, but of course, as as we often say on Team K, as this example just perfectly shows, right, is that uh, none of these things are neutral, right? It, it has to be convenience uh, for a certain end. It has to be frictionless um, on a certain pathway. Um, and if that goal or if that pathway uh, it goes against the the powers that be, um, these interests, then then it'll be scuttled. Speaking of Obama, right, like when the the ACA, um, you know, exchange website went online, right, there was all these all these news articles and all this hubbub about how like awful this website is, right? Like how completely uh, user unfriendly it is and how it crashes all the time and stuff like that. And, you know, people, people took that as an example of like, government just can't do anything right it just cannot build anything um but i think what your what this whistleblower shows and what this story you just shared shows is that like no i think we have to reckon with the fact that sometimes that's by design right like like a really bad website to get government uh provided healthcare um on some market exchange or a really bad website to abolish your debt like it's not bad because uh, the government like sub sub subcontracted it out to somebody um, who outsourced it to somebody else, right? It's bad because they don't want us to do that, right? They don't want us to get healthcare. They don't want us to abolish our debt using technology as this like this alibi, this scapegoat to be like, sorry, we tried to do it, but the technology is not good enough. It's like, no, you you made it not good enough. For one, you killed Matthew Lesko. That was. 
Well, he was wearing punctuation on his suit. That's a total bad guy suit. He helps people get free money from the government. That is a good guy. It's reflected in your score. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We, we we need the Matthew Lesko, right? Like, I'm getting you free money from the government. I'm wearing my uh my 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 loud suit with all the question marks on it. <laughs> I mean, it was we saw the exact same thing. I mean, it was just. I mean, it's just crazy, right? Because, well, I mean, we're not anarchists per se, but basically a bunch of Occupy Wall Street anarchists made this website for free <laughs> and it worked. And there were hundreds of thousands of claims made through it. And then they're like, oh my God, you know, right. We can't make a functional, a functional portal for you. But we saw this actually with the unemployment benefits at the beginning of the pandemic in Florida, where people in that state were hitting a wall, couldn't even, you know, sign up to get the uh, benefits that they deserved and especially, you know, wanted because there were the federal increases. And then it was revealed that the Florida govern governor, who's a Republican, you know, had requested that the numbers be kept down through these brutish technological means, i.e. just making a really shitty website so that people will just give up. <laughs> so much evil in the world just channeled through making a shitty website. <laughs> I mean, I, I think this this gets at another big theme in your work. If we can if we can move on from there um, and, and, and start kind of wrapping a lot of this stuff together is this question of democracy as well. Right. Like um, and, and uh, who who is democracy for? I mean, the, to go to the title of your documentary on this, right? What is democracy, right? Like you talk about like, you know, democratizing credit, right? Like this is, I think this is a, you know, this is a gerund, the, a verbiage that we hear constantly now in tech, right? Is that we're democratizing this, we're democratizing that for uh, for finance, right, democratizing credit looks like fintech, right, which is just like payday lending, but with an app um, <laughs> or, or democratizing credit looks like uh, subprime mortgages, right, which is like, you know, giving giving people home loans, knowing that they cannot pay it, um, knowing that it's on like extremely predatory uh, conditions. But at the same time, democratizing credit also looks like um, if you're a corporation like Amazon, it looks like, um, you know, in 2020, being able to, quote unquote, borrow $10 billion through various corporate and government bonds at a 0.4% interest rate, right? An interest rate that is essentially zero, right? That is democratizing credit um, for corporations is just literally giving them free money, right? 0% interest rate. Democracy in this in this political sense, right? Like we talk, it's admittedly something that we haven't spent 
a lot of time talking about on TMK, on this podcast. We we talk about things like democratizing the economy, right? As socialists, we want to democratize the economy. Um, we want to democratize through worker power. We talk about, yeah, democratizing technology and innovation, right? Whether it's this like ideology of democratization that I just talked about or democratizing innovation in like a Luddite sense, right? Of like actually giving people the power to have a say over what technology looks like, how it's built, why it's built, who does innovation and so on. But democracy as an object of political philosophy, of political practice, not so much. We we like we don't really talk about democracy in that sense here, um, and we haven't much. And I'm wondering now if that might be because, like, the conceptual well has been poisoned uh, in in a way by by neoconservatives, right? I'm thinking of people like Francis Fukuyama, um, but also people like Bill Kristol, right? Who you have a great story in the book about being on stage with and, and publicly debating. It's hard not to think of democracy, at least implicitly, as in in terms of like liberal democracy or spreading democracy, right? I just I just wonder. You've I mean you have a you have a documentary called What Is Democracy. You have a book called Democracy May Not Exist, but We'll Miss It When It's Gone. So I'm just wondering, how do you think about democracy, Astra? Like, I mean, like in the sense of like, how do you engage it? But also like, how do you think about it? You kind of hit, you hit one of the main motivators, which is, I, I, which is this claim, especially by tech companies, right? That they're democratizing that. And again, this is, you know, this sort of is dated now because we're in the dystopian <laughs> The, the dystopian <laughs> side. Uh, but, you know, when I was writing the people's platform, uh, I was really, you know, engaging with this claim and criticizing it really vigorously. You know, this idea that the internet and social media were d- democratizing everything. It did lead me though to wonder as I was writing the book, I was like, well, what would it mean to democratize culture? What would it mean to have a democratic internet? So those were co- questions in the back of my mind that I, I, you know, address a bit in that book. But while I was writing, Occupy Wall Street happened. And Occupy, of course, was one movement, you know, it was the the US iteration of a global movement that, you know, was happening in Egypt, in Tunisia, in Greece, in in Spain, you know, in Latin America, and all of these and in all of these places, people, you know, were living in very different political contexts. <laughs> and they were all saying, you know, you don't represent us and we want democracy. And you know, we're tired of being poor, <laughs> you know? And so there was this, so I was kind of having this cognitive dissonance, I guess, on the one hand of like, just writing about how these Silicon Valley sellouts were, you know, claiming to democratize things and they weren't. And then also being in the streets and people were shouting, you know, this is, this is what democracy looks like. And, 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 and revering the word, right. Saying the word democracy with this profound earnestness, and, you know, there was always, I think, this part of me, and, and I think it's from coming of age in the aught. So with the neoconservatives in power and George W. Bush and Bill Kristol and all these people, you know, say, claiming to bring so claiming to bring democracy to the Middle East. So for me, I almost had this like visceral contempt for the word. <laughs> like I just felt I didn't feel an attraction to the word democracy. And so it's, I, I think it's a bit surprising, actually, that I've become such a democracy loving person. Um, and <laughs> 
And I had to cut, I think it's, I had to really work it out for myself. You know, what does this word mean and what are the alternatives? And on the one hand, you know, I think even when I began making the film, I ran the book, I was like, well, maybe we should jettison the word democracy and just go with socialism, right? Or just go with communism, right? I mean, you know, but then people define socialism as you just did, which is democratizing the economy, (laughs) democratizing these all aspects of our lives. Okay, well, what do we mean? What the fuck do we mean by democracy, people? Um, (laughs) And so, um, and the thing is that, you know, I, I do think, although on a, on an almost intuitive level, I, I do believe, and it's not just intuitive because it's also theoretical. It's like, if we actually want to wrest power (laughs) away from the people who are hoarding it, it's going to take masses of people. Like we need a democratic movement in the sense that we need a movement where, you know, people are truly engaged and committed and aren't just like taking marching orders from the theoreticians or whatever, right? Like we need people engaged as their whole selves as like, it's a really big problem that we're going to have to try to solve. And it's going to take a lot, a lot of folks and no, no one person has all of the answers um, or no, you know, small Vanguard does. So, um, you know, I think, um, I think that that's, that's part of it. Like, I think if we're going to survive, we're going to need to democratize in a real and meaningful way. You know, I think that, I, I think, the book, especially even more than the film, is really me wrestling with the paradoxes of democracy. Each chapter is a paradox, a tension that's central to democratic theory and practice. And as a way, it's me laying out why democracy is so hard to do and why it's so frustrating. And so it doesn't provide like a, you know, 10 point plan. You know, it, it probably would have been a more popular book, but it'd been like 10 fixes for democracy. You know, <laughs> but we kind of know you know, a lot of us know what needs to happen. You know, in the near term, we need to get money out of politics. We need to end gerrymandering. We need to get rid of the electoral college. You know, and then we could go into the middle term. We could be more radical. And it's like, we have, we know, we know a lot of what needs to be done. The problem is power and how to build it. And then I think there are these philosophical conundrums, these tensions that we have to deal with. And I'm particularly interested, you know, in how, in a way, my message changes depending on who I'm talking to. Like, if I'm talking to liberals, then I'm like, you know, we don't need to restore our democracy. We've never had one. Okay, liberals, <laughs> you know, the world, <laughs> it's not like we took a wrong turn and Trump was an aberration. You know, you know we need to, like, uh, you know, take a deeper look at the fact that minority rule is baked into our political system and that we, that capitalism and, and democracy are anathema, right? Capitalism is a system that concentrates wealth. It's based on hierarchy. It's winner take all. It is anti-democratic. It, un- it is the biggest threat to democracy today. If I'm talking to socialists, then I like to say, you know, contra Marx, you know, communism is not the riddle of democracy solved. Because actually, if we were living in a world where there was you know, some degree of, if there was economic egalitarianism, then all of these thorny really tr- difficult democratic questions would rush to the front of our lives. Like right now, we don't really have to grapple with how difficult democracy is because we don't live in a democracy. <laughs> you know, we don't, our workplaces aren't democratic. Our political system is not democratic. But like, how do you de- democratically enact the idea of worker control and collective ownership on a planet with limited resources, right? I mean, how do you... um how do you actually determine the boundaries of decision-making in an equitable way? You know, like who is in and who is out of different decisions? 
Um, there would be, you know, I, in this one piece on socialism in, in the collection, I sort of lay out what, so, what a bunch of these questions would be that we would actually have to really think about and that are really thorny, <laughs> but that are not on the table because we're not living in a socialist world. And so what I say in that piece is, you know, right now we're debating things that, you know, shouldn't be that hard. Like, should billionaires exist? The answer is no. You know, are women <laughs> the equal of men? You know, should should police kill black people? It's like, no, no, no. These things actually, I mean, that's where we are. That's how fucked up the society we're living in is that we have to fight for those things. But if we were in a, a socialist socialist paradigm, we'd be having way more interesting and I think complicated political debates. And so I always joke that my motto for socialism is like, uh, let's have more interesting political problems. <laughs> I should say as well, uh, you know, I'm a Marxist and Ed is an anarchist. And um, and this interview is over, Astra. <laughs> I think the thing is, like, I'm a, such an anarchist of this spirit because, you know, it, for so long, it was like the, only the anarchists who did anything. And also I was raised as basically an anarchist. You know, I didn't go to school and I have my I'm I'm, I'm constantly being denounced on Twitter as an anarchist. <laughs> <laughs> Happen today. <laughs> yeah, I don't, uh, I don't uh, say it too much, but it's there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I identify more loudly with a Luddite. I think that's the way I get around it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That I, I, I mean, I think you've raised uh, like all of the right questions, and I, I, I mean, I love this this idea that like you know we we should be fighting for socialism if only so we can have more interesting uh political problems to actually have to solve i think that i think that's exactly right and i mean it gets at something that we talked about at the beginning of uh, of our conversation like you know bringing up like langdon winner right it's just like you know we've we like we've been replaying the same um like quote unquote debates uh for for decades for so so long and at the end of the day um, it's not because, like you said, like there's no answers, like nobody knows what to do, that that it's like still somehow unsettled. But it, it's a it, it's about power, right? It's like it's it behooves uh, the people already in power um, to never allow any of these questions um, of like the equality of women, uh, you know, the the right to life uh, for for people of color, right? Like it behooves the it behooves the people in power to never allow these questions to settle, um, to always keep them open, um, to always keep them uh, in in the in the octagon of debate where we're constantly having to fight each other um, over it. I think that is some that is a really uh, crucial question that I think leftists have to ask themselves as well is not like, how do I develop the best take on this thing? But rather, like, how do I how do I just make this a thing that we don't have to talk about anymore? How do I settle? How do we settle this question? It's not like, how do I have the best take? But it's like, how do we all collectively be like this? This is not an, this is not a debate. Uh, th this question is over. It's settled. We know what to do, um, and we're going to do it, and just and move on to more interesting things. Yeah, and interesting doesn't mean easier. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. You know, one of my favorite little divides that might be related to this is the divide between you know the Silicon Valley's transhumanism and then the and Russian cosmism. So the Silicon Valley transhumanist are interested in litigating and, and trying to dispute really like basic questions 
some of the dark uh, enlightenment folks don't believe that women should have the right to vote. They believe that we should have, like, we should zone the earth, you know, (laughs) or we should, we should have like, you know, ethereal factories covering large sections of the planet or exhaust resources or have seasteading cities that are extensions of like uninteresting questions that, that just come down to like how much dominion over the earth should capital have. And then the cosmos ask, frankly, batshit questions, but like ones that are interesting, right? Like what if we had a society where we were decided let's just like try to revive people you know instead like not the way that the uh, transhumanists do where it's like let's have everyone live together but it's like what if we tried to bring people back to life so that they could live in a in a paradise what sort of social system would you need uh, what sort of distribution of resources what sort of rights would be conferred to the dead or to their descendants or to uh, and what sort of rights do we remove or deny property or intangible persons? And there, that leads them to more interesting debate about those things. Whereas the the capitalists and the Silicon Valley people are more interested in entrenching right the status quo, the way the pop- property relations are today, or advancing reactionary projects to return to more wise fair or more coercion based or more forceful. Arrangements of power and domination, right? Who are these people? Oh, the Russian Cosmos. They're fascinating. I'll send you a bunch of stuff from them. And they are um, really, they're really, 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 really interesting. <laughs> they're actually also, you know, I think one good uh, entry point is, so today we have like Peter Thiel and his ilk, you know, doing like transfusions of blood to stay young forever. Allegedly, allegedly. Um, right, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> and they're doing this, you know, to make, and they'll make billions probably off of it. But the Russian cosmos initially had that as a way, as an experiment, as like part of this idea of eventually building up to like a society where you could keep people young so that they could also be involved in this work, right? Of, of creating. I think the best analog is like museums that would then be dedicated to investigating a person's life and their social context or the artifacts they leave behind and asking, okay, can we bring this person back? Okay, if we can't, like what obligation do we have to them and their descendants to like preserve their memory and so on and so forth? What era are these people from? Uh, Right on the eve of the Russian Revolution. Yeah, very, very, very interesting, very kooky, very uh, fascinating and like totally different vision, but also just like, I think, what like to your point about like there are much more interesting questions to have and honestly more fun ones like we could learn a lot from like learning okay why is that idea or this idea just not sensible right or if it or what parts of it are and what parts of it aren't like those are more interesting debates and like arguing with you know some nationalists about why it is that everybody deserves like basic amenities right What's interesting is we have one thing I talk about in Democracy May Not Exist, and then it comes up in some of the pieces in the collection is temporality. Like, you know, one question I was asking is what is democracy's relationship to time? And it just seems like such a boring conception of time to only be interested in extending your own life. Mm -hmm. It's just Mm -hmm. like, I'm going to live forever with the blood of the young. (laughs) I mean, it just is. Instead of, you know, seeing that you're part of a society that's this intergenerational process and that, you know, there's the um, the wonderful writer, Robin Kimmerer, who is an indigenous writer who writes a lot about moss and other plants. And in one piece, she describes time not as a river, but as a lake, right? Like there are other ways of conceiving time that are 
where the past and the future, you know, are more present in people's conception of of daily reality. And so I write about that in the essay out of time about climate, um, the way climate change is messing with our sense of temporality because we're stuck on capitalism's clock, <laughs> exploiting things and trying to meet our um, revenue expectations, and like, you know, totally screwing up the temporalities of plants and animals and screwing over future generations. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, questions of time and obligations to ancestors and to, you know, future future generations would be something that I would think would be on the table as major democratic questions in a different economic paradigm, right? Like how do you make space at the proverbial table for people who aren't born yet, um, you know, and expand the demos so that it's not just about this moment. And of course the people who would stay there for unborn, you know, the unborn like right wing reactionaries who really just right. control women's reproduction. <laughs> That's also, mm-hmm. how do you do that in a radically feminist egalitarian way? Yeah. I, I, in fact, I wanted to quote, um, it's, it's the last like paragraph or a few sentences of the collection, um, remake the world, which is just perfectly relevant for this. You, you write, the seeds of approaches that might help ensure sustainability and survival may have been sown long ago. In our quest for solutions, we should look to longstanding principles and not only pray for a quick technological fix. The ancient recognition of times polyrhythmic and sometimes staccato unfolding with an ear tuned to chaotic rupture and a more expansive notion of solidarity across generations may be just what this moment calls for. End of the world, end of the month, same struggle. This slogan speaks a profound truth, but we still must work to make it real. Sometimes we have to manage to conceive of multiple timescales and horizons at once, or we are toast. And I, I mean, I just think, one, that what, what, a, what a beautiful way to end the book, um, but also very relevant here as well. In terms of like, I think that's something, you know, getting at what uh, Ed was talking about with like the Russian cosmist uh, as well. And this like really, you know, frankly, boring, uh, like capitalist conception of time, um, but also just like very boring uh, and fraudulent um, conceptions of like what innovation means under capitalism um, are at the end of the day. Uh, extremely simplistic, uh, very naive, right? They conceive of the world um, in this uh, uh, very like restrained and constricted kind of mindset while also preaching revolution um, and disruption. But at the end of the day, what we need is not only more interesting problems to solve, but more interesting thoughts to have um, and more expansive thoughts around like, what does time, you know, how do we conceive of time and our relation to time? How do we conceive of something like um, technological innovation, right? And here I'm thinking of um, as well, another, you know, uh, great essay in, in that that's collected uh, in your new book, The Automation Charade, um, which as, you know, synchronicity of time would have it, uh, came out in the same exact week as my uh, as my essay on Potemkin AI, and in this way we were um, we were mind melding. We were getting at the exact same things um, in slightly different ways, in very complementary ways, in fact. And I think at the at the end of the day, we both uh, the conclusion of both of our essays is essentially that all of these things that are held up as automation or artificial intelligence are not 
they are not those things. They are not automated. They are not artificial intelligence. What they are is uh, alienated and fetishized human labor. Uh, Labor held up as technology held up as innovation, like the ultimate commoditization, right? Of like not turning um, living labor into dead labor, as Marx puts it, right? But but rather just like turning living labor into undead labor. It's still alive, but we, we uh, the capitalists point at it and be like, look, it's dead. It's just a machine. <laughs> That's so great. No, that is, I mean, you got to love it because there's always these, this idea that uh, of kind of the zeitgeist or ideas popping off. You know, I don't know. I feel like it's something I've read about, you know, people having the same ideas at the same time. And we must have literally been writing totally in parallel mm-hmm. uh, and, and came out with these pieces that are now often quoted. I see them quoted side by side um, in, cause I, you know, I still keep up with tech writing. So I think in two books that I've ordered uh, and read in the last few months, I saw them both quoted, which is great. <laughs> I mean, I think it's funny. That was, that was a piece that, I mean, I say it in it. It just, it, it really began because I was editing what is democracy. And I went in, in Toronto, there were all these like underground malls because it's fucking cold. And so I, you know, go outside for whatever, five feet, all I could endure, go into this underground mall, I'm ordering food. And this besuited guy, you know, this guy who looks like he's a lawyer or something like that, is just is in, in, awestruck by the fact that he got an alert on his phone telling him that his organic rice bowl was done 15 minutes early. And he says to the woman behind the counter, "You, know, how did the phone know? How did the app know? And then she's like, because I messaged you. <laughs> and I, just, I suddenly was like, the world became clear. And I just thought, oh my God, there's all these fake robots hiding, you know, hiding human labor, right? Like, it's like, right, like this zombie, this zo- zombie labor. I love the way you just described it. And it just reminded me of, you know, I being like eight years old and making a, a robot, which was really cardboard and I covered it in duct tape and I, put some, I think I like put my like hair I just cut off like on its head and a little tape recorder. It was just like, you know, it's basically like, we're still there, man. You know, it's just an email. And this guy, this guy had this vision. He had so bought into the Silicon Valley vision that you could see that he almost thought like that a human being wasn't, you know, picking the lettuce or like, you know, cutting the vegetables and cooking the food, let alone sending him the message. It was just this total erasure of humanity. And so, sent me down this ranting this ranting path but it's something that um you know i mean it's just part of but it's part of the old trend right of capitalists wanting to obscure obscure the role of workers you know and we have the you know it's part and parcel in that way of like the myth of the lone entrepreneur or the job creator right and now it's just like oh the robots the robots did it You know, we're coming up on time, uh, and and I, I just think that the, those relations that you just laid out are a really great way to start wrapping up the episode, because I think that is something that uh, exploring these relations is something that your work does 
so well, right? Whether it's, you know, some people get democracy while some people get debt, right? Some people get technology and convenience and innovation and other people get, uh, you, you know, exploitation and extraction and alienation, right? It really does come down to, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, it does come down to a kind of haves and have nots, right? Some people get this thing and other people don't get this thing. But also all of the all of the 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 systems uh, in place, both ideological and material, um, meant to hide that fact, right? Meant to hide that not everybody has democracy. Not everybody gets to enjoy the fruits of technological innovation. Um, but that but that's that's an inconvenient truth in itself, right? Um, you the, you you don't want to know that, right? You you tell a story in the automation charade. Um, which I which I loved uh, because it, it, it's just so like you know, cruelly depicting this. It's you know uh, Je- uh, Thomas Jefferson's um, quote unquote invention of the dumb waiter, right? Which was uh, you know a way to use um, you know mechanical technology, right? Pulleys and levers and ropes and whatnot um, in order to hide uh, the shame of the fact that. Uh, there were a lot of slaves doing a lot of the work and labor, but that that went against his own professed uh, political beliefs. It went against um, the you know politeness of uh, of aristocratic dinner parties. Um, we can't have that. Uh, we can't have it be known. It's not that we can't have these these things. We just can't have them be known. So we need to hide them behind the dumbwaiter, behind the levers and ropes and pulleys. And I mean, fast forward 250 years later almost, and uh, we have very much the same exact thing, but now it's, you know, now it's Amazon um, in the warehouses. Now it's, you know, you know Mechanical Turk, um, or the content moderation, or whatever, in these like big office buildings in the Philippines, and but it's all at the end of the day ways of hiding the fact that some people get democracy, some people get uh, innovation, and other people, um, the vast majority of people in the world, um, have to uh, slave away to make these uh, these very um, convenient uh, truths appear to be that. And then justifying it too, right? Because when you do pull the veil away, a lot of the arguments are then, well, you know, this is hard work and like this is, the, and I mean, that's the ideal and that's true in like some narrow instances. And so we just have to keep this massive machine of insecurity and of, you know, misery going so that nobody suffers in the long term. But in the meantime, we have to crush thousands and hundreds of thousands and millions of people into the dirt. Yeah, you're making me think that, you know, in a way, um, I think the moral of that story is that we're all Thomas Jefferson in some ways, right? Because it's literal dirt when you're talking about kids, you know, working in the mines, getting these rare earth minerals that are in our phones and our computers. And so the point is, it's a kind of parable or metaphor or whatever for so many of the the goods. And, and in that sense, you know, and I think this is something, Jathan, you know, that we've always we, you know, we have in common, which is like digital capitalism is just capitalism, <laughs> right? Like this, this yeah. obscuring of labor is not new. This is what has been happening. Um, and now it just takes these, you know, it takes these virtual forms and it's happens via our phones and stuff like that. But like this, you know, there's a whole lot of continuity 
amidst the change. And when we forget that, you know, when we ignore that continuity, that's when we're like, you know, confused and imagine that we're living in a revolution when it's not. It's actually more of a devolution. Yeah, and and I, I, I uh, uh, one of your essays that I love that was not collected in this in in this new book um, is one that you wrote I think back in 2013 for the Baffler called "Surfing the Net," right? Surfing in terms of uh, feudal lords and serfs, which I mean, one just just a a, a brilliant all timer of a Baffler headline, <laughs> "Surfing the Net." Um, but again, like you you wrote this back in 2013, right? Like back at a time when nobody. Uh, was thinking about like, you know, essentially nobody and certainly not in the mainstream um, was thinking about things in this way. Now it's like uh, accepted um, as just a a platitude in a way that like, yeah, we we live in neo-feudalism. You know, Jody Dean had that great essay in the LA Review of Books talking about like, yeah, this is neo-feudalism. And I, I think that it's like, it's not that, it's it's not that these things were not apparent, right? It, obviously, they were apparent because, um, you know, you wrote about it um, almost 10 years ago, right? You and I have both been uh, writing and, and, and thinking about these things and trying to be like, look, this is just what it is, right? It's, it's not what it appears to be. It's what it actually is. Um, and that's what matters. Um, and I, I, I think that... Um, you know, and it goes same to that question of democracy as well, right? There, there is this shell that's put over these concepts or over these systems, which are meant to hide them away from us actually just realizing what they what they truly are and what they have always been. Yeah, I mean, I think part of what you know, I think this is part of why I wrote that critical piece, surfing the net, though, is that you know, I. I'm an independent filmmaker, you know, my partner's an independent musician. And if you remember back to the discourse, then it was basically that the internet was going to revolutionize the world because everything was going to wind up being like Napster. <laughs> and so and it was like a conversation that could only take that utopian tone if you didn't talk to musicians. And it wasn't just about like musicians not getting paid. It was the fact that Napster was always a poor for-profit company, like slathered in ads that you know, had no concern for artists and no concern for labor. And it wasn't, it wasn't that, uh, it wasn't just that, you know, IP was being, intellectual property was being shared freely or something. It was just that it was basically obviously one, you know, one corp, one, one commercial model battling with another. And so I thought, you know, I think that's also why it was just one of those, those moments where it was just reminded that, you know, the people who are being impacted by something should also <laughs> be listened to, right? And might have a more critical perspective on the way things are playing out, you know, because you'd basically, again, to go back to the beginning of the conversation and have these check check cheerleaders talking about how fantastic it was that the, you know, recording giants were going to be disrupted. And it was just so obvious that they weren't going anywhere. And in fact, there's just been more corporate consolidation, more concentration. And now we just have some you know, digital distribution giants like Spotify joining them. <laughs> and so, um, you yeah. know, I was shaking my skinny fist at the, uh, you know, uh, at them, you know, and just basically saying labor, you know, but let's look at this from, from the perspective of the people creating the things of value. And why can't we use this new technology to create a system, you know, that would actually benefit everybody? You know, instead of just having to cheer, cheerlead, you know, new exploiters just because they're new, like that's not enough. 
it's uh, funny that you bring up the uh, the analogy of Napster because I think Napster really played a huge part in you know, particular access. There was music you wanted, but you didn't want to pay for it. Kind of set a precedent going forward where people were more willing to not only just take something, but no know, knowingly use something that exploited someone else because it was more convenient. It was an easier path uh, to go down. You know, it was easier than going to Tower and buying a twenty dollar album when you can just stay up all night and download, you know, the album online. Same thing. It's easier to take the 20 or 30 minute walk to the store to go get your dinner and instead just have someone deliver it to you and have their labor exploited. That's interesting. I haven't thought about that, but it was like, yeah, the first, you know, what, what it was nice not paying for music. I mean, I enjoyed not paying for music, but you know, it's also was a convenience. It really, right. And it sort of associated the internet with this, immediate gratification that and look where it has gotten us into this economy of gig work and endless exploitation. Yeah, we don't talk much about those heady days of the Clay Shirkies and the Jeff Jarvises <laughs> and the, the dads of the internet, um, as, as you put it in your, your essay uh, with Joanne McNeil. Um, but I, I think that we have to trace a direct line um, between then and now. And um, yeah, I think I think perhaps one of the scariest uh, and most uh, most terrifying things is that uh, the the devil is becoming professionalized, right? The uh, the tech sector is not just like it's not the '90s, like the heady '90s days of like hackers. Um, it's not the gurus of the aughts, you know, telling us that like uh, oh we have all this cognitive surplus, and I and I'm gonna like you know, throw together Napster, uh, you know, and that's going to be some revolutionary thing. And, you know, now, now instead, um, it has become fully uh, financialized, professionalized, corporatized um, in, in a way that I think is uh, very frightening because it does make it um, both more and less obvious in many ways um, what it what it actually means. I, I, I want to go back to a point that you made, and I want to end with this point that I think, you know, as we talked about uh, in our episode on Amazon um, with Alex Press, um, uh, you know, as you just brought up as well, right, in terms of like, um, yeah, I, it, now, you know, if you just talk to the musicians, then these critiques and these consequences were obvious. Um, the same goes with the debtors, right? If you just talk to people that have debilitating student debt, medical debt, mortgage debt, whatever, um, then the, the critiques and consequences and pathways forward are obvious, right? Uh, you go to Ed's work, right? If you just talk to the gig workers, the people actually laboring on these platforms, the critiques and the consequences are obvious, right? It's, it's all obvious um, as long as you talk to the right people, right? Like, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, earlier that, you know, we wrote this essay for, for The Nation in 2015, um, looking at the ways in which like people's Facebook activities was being used um, both for lead generation to market them with predatory, uh, you know, financial vehicles and loans and so on, but also to create these credit scores. Right. And I've, I've like shared this article with friends of mine I know um, who work, you know, who are journalists and investigative reporters um, working on like ad tech and stuff, right? And like shared this essay with them and them being like, holy shit, you guys figured it out like six years ago. Like you like you knew what was happening. And it's like, it's easy to be ahead of the curve if you just 
look at the experiences of the right people and talk to the right people, uh, not not believe the propaganda and the lies of people that have a story to sell you, but actually understand the material conditions of people being thrown into the machine rather than the people operating the machine. Um, and I think that is something that we will will now and forever uh, is a lesson that we have to take away, right? Is that like, yeah, you have to understand the operators of the machine, but to really understand why the machine is bad, you have to understand the people that are thrown into its gears. Hallelujah. I mean, I just totally agree. With that. I mean, it's absolutely, and I think that's the operating. You know, when I it makes me think of my defense of democracy, right? Like that's really it, because the people, the people who are experts who actually understand what living under this economic and political system entails, are you know not the people who are revered as experts or who have the microphone and have the power. Um, you know, I will say though, maybe. Uh, you know, the one thing that is really encouraging, um, if you compare it to, you know, when I started writing about tech issues critically, is that there is there's tech worker organizing now. Right. There was no tech worker political labor movement for me to point to when I was finishing the people's platform. I mean, I interviewed um, Meredith Whitaker, who is at AI now, who's a friend when I was guest hosting The Dig, which is, you know, uh, when I was doing my podcast, podcast and we talked about how, um, not that long ago, maybe like three years ago or four years ago, we were having a drink and I asked her what the prospects were for organizing at Google. And she was basically like, it will never happen. Men's rights activists just, you know, dominate. And, you know, and little did she know that she would be organizing this 20,000 person line to walk out, you know, against sexual misconduct. And so, you know, and I think we, we see signs of people, you know, who are, you know, white collar workers who've been told they're not real workers for years, you know, rejecting that Kool-Aid and understanding that they need to collectively organize, whether it's by forming solidarity unions, you know, or other formations that can help them, um, you know, have uh, power in numbers. And, you know, that's, that's, what we need, you know, and so that is the direction that we need to go. And it is really, you know, it's a profound rejection of the dominant ideology that, you know, has pervaded our culture more broadly, right? Which is that work is a privilege, especially if you're white collar and you're doing something like programming or engineering. But it was like so much more intense in the tech sector and in Silicon Valley. Um, and so there's something really encouraging about seeing signs of it weakening and people, people, you know, building that kind of solidarity in those spaces. So, you know, those are the sorts of things, you know, those are the sorts of things you hope to see, right. When you're ranting and raving about this stuff and shaking your fist, like people actually, um, you know, then challenging power structures in these institutions, because what you see is that when one group of people does it, like it inspires others because solidarity, solidarity is contagious. Is contagious. I love that. Let's let's end it there. Yeah, I mean, just a, a big shout out to the work that you're doing. Uh, a big shout out to the work that uh, Meredith and uh, and people like that are doing. I mean, these are the these are the models that we have to follow, um, for sure. Um, solidarity is contagious. I love that. I think with that, I just want to thank um, Astra again for a uh, just a fantastic, fun, brilliant conversation. Um, Astra's new book is Remake the World. 
uh, essays, reflections, rebellions, um, pick it up, uh, pick up Astra's other books that we've talked about here. Watch, watch Astra's other documentaries, uh, follow Astra's organizing work. Um, just, you know, just follow in the footsteps of Astra. Uh, that's the takeaway here. <laughs> it's been so good having you on TMK. Thanks so much. It's a big honor. And let's write something again. Yes, absolutely. Um, and with that, I want to thank everybody as well for listening. Um, you can subscribe to get more more episodes, a, free, uh, a, a premium episode every single week on patreon.com slash thismachinekills. And until then, we will see y'all later. Let's descend through fog and rain and see if we can find the same way out this small mess It's not as if we lose our lives or be impaled by carving knives just yet No, not unless we sign the dotted line So everything will turn out fine Let's just discard what makes us tick and act as if we're really thicker Take pen and hand and sign the dotted line So everything will turn out fine And if it's not what it appears to be We'll get down on our bended knees And lick the shit from which they stand Until it shines Go away to somewhere new where people haven't got a clue and fled into the crowd and sign the dotted line so everything will turn out fine. And if it's not what it's cracked up to be, we'll sit so psychophantically, we'll smile and nod and be well. Dress for our decline